This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Talk money to me. Hello and welcome to Talk Money To Me. In this podcast, we explore the financial markets, investment strategies, and chat to interesting people in the world of business. I'm Candace Burke. And I'm Felicity Thomas. Now, thank you so much for joining us today. We are actually going to bring you another one of our special guest interviews, which I think it's a really good time for this interview. This time we have Ray David from Schroeder's Funds Management. Now, Ray joined Schroeder's back in July 2012, but prior to Schroeder's, he did work at UBS, which he touched on. He didn't mention, though, that he was actually um, within their Emerging Australian Companies team. And for several years, he was one of the number one rated small caps analysts in the Australian market. That is quite an achievement. So what we'll hear in our conversation with Ray today is his career spans two decades in the financial markets. He is a fountain of knowledge when it comes to the Aussie market in particular, but also knows, obviously, as you do in the markets, what's going on globally. Absolutely. So he works at Schroeder's currently. Now, Schroeder's was established in 1961 and it's a wholly owned subsidiary of UK listed Schroeder's PLC. It's actually based in Sydney and the business manages assets for institutional and wholesale clients across Australian equities, fixed income and multi-asset and global equities. So this may be a fund that you've heard of. It may not be, but it's one that you should do your own research into. So we are excited to be quizzing Ray on the current state of play in the markets and where he's investing at the moment within the portfolio that he runs. Now, remember, our chat today is not considered personal advice. And even though we're registered advisors at Shore and Partners, please note that the podcast and the content discussed does not constitute financial advice, nor is it a financial product. It's based on all the facts known at the time of recording, which is the 27th of September, 2022. Wow, this year has flown. <laughs> I know, right? All righty, that's done and dusted. Let's get into our chat with Ray. Welcome, Ray, to Talk Money to Me. Thanks for having me, Candice. Welcome, Ray. We really want to start off the conversation with a little bit of background on you. So what actually made you get into finance and become a fund manager? The interest in finance started in the year 2000, just after I finished high school. So what sparked my interest was actually exposure to a well-known pyramid scheme that ran rampant through Western Sydney. It was known as the Froggy Internet Scheme run by a fraudster, Carl Solomon. And so the pyramid scheme collapse owing creditors about $70 million in about 2002, affected about 2,000 families. But during those years, my family and friends were approached to invest numerous times. Sales agents were using boiler room tactics to pressure investors to invest large sums of money. And they were promising five-fold returns over three years. Now, lots of family and friends did end up investing. Uh, they ended up losing life savings and I saw that firsthand, the destruction caused by either bad investment advice or lack of investment knowledge. So I made it my career prerogative to understand the world of finance um, then and understand risk of return, 
further my education in investment. And eventually after graduating from university, I landed a career in stockbroking and equity research, which spanned roles as director of emerging companies at UBS, which was a great learning experience, a lot of hard work, but also lots of fun. And I was really privileged to be working with some of the best analysts in the market and keeping regular contact with them today. Um, and eventually I found myself at this current role at Schroeder's. Uh, so I've been at Schroeder's now for, for 10 years, uh, working within the Australian equities team. And you really never stop learning about markets, uh, particularly you know in today's climate where you've, you've seen a lot of volatility. And so it's been that hunger to learn, uh, to protect capital, to build wealth ever since that um, pyramid scheme exposure that's been the real driver of my success in career and funds management. So it has definitely changed and progressed over the years. So let's turn to the markets. I mean, what are your thoughts on the current state of play in the markets? And what are you seeing in terms of recent volatility? Do you see this sticking around for some time? So the funds management and stockbroking industry has changed. Um, if I think about the biggest change, it's really that information advantage that you could have carved out uh, years ago. That that information advantage is decaying at a lot faster rate. And it's mainly due to proliferation of the internet, which can be used to access real-time information. Uh, so, so for example, when I was at UBS um, and even a previous career at a boutique stockbroking firm, you know, you carved out information advantage by being on the road, seeing as many companies as you could, talk to many industry consultants, and generally you had a bit of an edge on the market on or about a particular company or a particular industry. Uh, but today's day and age, you know, you are if you can equip yourself with a data science function such as our team at Schroeder's, you know, we can scrape real-time pricing information. Uh, we can make reasonable volume estimates using web traffic data or other sources of information. So forecasting is a lot more dynamic in today's market and particularly with the impact of social media, which is a great channel for information. You know, I can connect with a US-based car dealer and get insights into US auto sales, you know, before you get the monthly and statistics. So that information advantage is becoming less so. It's still important, but uh, I guess the proliferation of the internet has made that advantage uh, decay at a lot faster rate. And so I think the biggest advantage an investor can have today is just their analytical capability, uh, especially being able to interpret financial statements and have investment discipline about how they construct their portfolio. Um, analytical and behavioral advantage, I think, will continue to remain important, especially in the market environment where you're seeing a lot of emotional elements in price setting, particularly with the advent of new retail investors, which have flooded the market since the pandemic. Um, they've also had a lot of volatility. And so, Having discipline around price setting, uh, about your behavioural bias towards value, I think will allow you to exploit um, what advantages are left in the market. I agree completely because, you know, to, to your point, there is so much information and so much data and analytics out there, but then also, you know, it is harder for the investor to not be too emotional, right? So let's talk about that side of the markets, Ray. You know, we've seen a lot of volatility of late. What are you seeing in particular that is, I guess, keeping you up at night or are you sleeping soundly? What What's your take on the market at the moment? Well, e equity markets are now adjusting to the new central bank paradigm. So the experience of the last decade has been low inflation, which has allowed central banks to prime 
the markets and the economy really by keeping cash rates low, even on the 10-year bond yield, uh, basically through quantitative easing. So that's changed somewhat since the pandemic. Um, the burst of inflation to 40-year highs has made it hard for central banks to keep those monetary policy settings in place. As a result, central banks are now moving to pre-GFC orthodoxy where when setting monetary policy. And so that means interest rates are now again being used as a shutoff valve for the economy or to try to cool demand, which is something hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, we actually did this piece for investors when we looked at tightening cycles. And what's evident around this time around that this is the fastest tightening cycle for cash rates since the late 80s. So you really got to go back over 40 years to get a feel for what happened in previous cycle when rates tightened so fast. So it's creating a lot of volatility in the markets, but it's also creating great investment opportunities because valuations are reacting to high interest rates. And, and, and all of a sudden, um, you now have a choice as an investor to either have a risk-free rate a return of 4% or invest in equity markets. So if you go back to 2020, you know, the risk-free rate got to zero to half a percent. And so a lot of the good quality companies were bid up to excessive valuations. They're now coming back. They're being priced of high interest rates, which means attractive valuations for us and also more opportunity. At the same time, you know, the weak businesses that were dependent on crazy market valuations, really they had sham business models or able to raise equity to continue on burning cash. They make good short opportunities. So think of the frenzy around buy now, pay later, for example, uh, or the dot-com crash, which is now playing out again. So for us, volatility creates opportunities as long as you can keep your wits about and remain disciplined, again, going back to that behavioral bias and have a view to our valuation and particularly also keep a long-term view because market dislocations tend to be great times to put capital to work. That's it. And I guess because you are a long, short fund, you can really take you know a lot of op- you know, opportunities are really presenting themselves, right? So it's actually probably you're having a field day, I bet, <laughs> with everything that's going on. I guess for our purpose, of this chat today. Um, You know, we're mainly going to focus on the Australian economy and share market with you. And this is the, I guess, topic and the hot topic that's been going around uh, globally. But what do you think, what's your opinion on the likelihood of Australia actually heading into recession with everything that's going on? I think a recession is almost a near 100% certainty. Um, So as dire as that sounds, uh, my view is, and our team's view is, it's it's a recession that's actually needed because there is no spare capacity in the economy, just given the extraordinary amount of stimulus that was put into the economy uh, since the pandemic. And you can see that in the unemployment rate. In Australia's unemployment rate is now 3.5%. It's the lowest on record. Uh, it's even well below the 80s. You know, if you speak to builders who are at the forefront of the economy, they still have six-month backlogs given decisions made six to 12 months ago. Uh, retail sales are still above trend. And a lot of businesses are facing immense labor shortages. So services inflation is starting to take off. And so there's actually not a lot of spare capacity in the economy. And a recession is needed to bring things back to equilibrium uh, because developed Governments spent almost 6 to 10% of GDP on wage subsidies during the pandemic. And so a lot of that went into the economy and also increased savings rates, which is still trickling out into the economy today. Um, as this support unwinds, because governments are moving to, to wean the economy off stimulus and central banks are increasing rates, you know, 
those two factors alone will have quite a negative impact to GDP causing a recession. But again, it's a recession that's needed because things are so out of whack. And, and so if you think about how severe this recession will be, um, it's always difficult to tell at the start, but if you look at the banking system, it's actually good shape. You know, capital ratios are higher than pre-GFC, so the banking system can withstand increases in delinquencies. Uh, the majority of home loans are below 60% LVR. It's the 10% of mortgages which are above 80% LVR, which may get into trouble. But again, unemployment is at record low. Job vacancies are at record highs. And so there is capacity in the economy to absorb a slowdown. And it's, it's very much needed, I think. So very much needed. But do you think this is going to be a deep recession or a quick, sharp, you know, correction that we need, like you've just explained? See, I, I think rates are going to stay higher for longer than what the what people have been used to since 2020 and 21. And so things will get back to normal. And as things get back to normal, I think you'll see demand come off and the GDP numbers recorded decline. I think you're just going to get back to equilibrium. I don't think you're going to see a full-blown shock to the banking system and you'll see valuations react. To answer the question, I don't think you're going to see a significant amount of GDP growth as from where we are today. It's going to sort of decline and then just go back to trend. I guess, what are your thoughts on, so last Tuesday, Chalmers um, announced that our forecast deficit was actually going to be a lot lower than predicted. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? The blessing about Australia is we are commodity rich. And so we do have the benefit of being in a good place when it comes to uh, energy. So we're a big gas producer. Also, thermal coal is a huge export. Iron ore is our, our number one export, but, you know, the real the real uplift in value is coming from coal and energy. And so we are in a good position, uh, unlike other countries such as uh, Europe, also the US. And so the budget deficit being in a better position really reflects some of those automatic stabilizers around exports, but also unemployment is at low levels and so tax receipts have been higher. So we are in a fortunate position and it does mean that there'll be better budget repair, which puts the government in a better position to absorb a a slowdown or recession. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons that we kind of dodged a recession last time. Um, you know, the US went into recession because of our commodities, right? We do have that um, bit of a buffer and a bit of a pull that the government can use. Absolutely. For stimulus. Yeah. So it's not doom and gloom, Ray, <laughs> just for just for our <laughs> listeners, I guess, peace of mind. We're heading into tough times for sure, but um, what you're sort of communicating is we need to go back to equilibrium. GDP growth will slow and then we will come out of this relatively okay because of how the Australian economy is set up. So let's, with that state of play in the back of your mind as a fund manager, let's focus to your Australian long short fund, which aims to outperform the ASX 200. I mean, I guess every Aussie investor, that's their aim, right? So we're keen to dive deep into the fund and how it's made up at the moment. And I guess before we get there, can you explain to our listeners exactly the mechanics behind a long short fund? Like what do you do on a day-to-day business? How does it, how does it work? Great question, and um, certainly we, we're still educating uh, investors, particularly on the, the shorting side. But if you think about a long-short manager, essentially a long-short manager is basically taking bets on both sides of stock prices. And so a long means to buy a stock in anticipation of profiting for increases in value, and a short is the opposite, by betting and profiting when the stock goes down. If 
you get the call right. So shorting requires the ability to borrow the stock from a lender, sell it on market, and in anticipation, buy it back at a low price and return it to, a, to the lender and locking in a profit. That function is generally only available to institutional managers such as ourselves. And so typically, if we look at our long short fund, our capital is typically about 30% short. So if you give me $100, we'll sell short about $30. And then we'll take that $30 as well as the original $100 and put that into the long side. So really re-rating those funds into our best ideas. Uh, so generally, the fund is about 90 to 100% invested. Uh, but within that, we're about $130 long and 30% short. And so if, if you think about what we're trying to do, we're trying to make, again, money on both sides. So again, on, on the long and the short side, because the way we think about investing, it's, it's twofold. So we spend a lot of time in trying to understand uh, the quality and duration of a company's earnings power and cash flow. So is it a strong business model? Does it have competitive advantage? How sustainable are those cash flows? The company position does it have good governance and how are management incentivized? Uh, what's the competitive landscape and how is it evolving? So we're really trying to understand what makes this company tick and how sustainable are the, the cash flows. But secondly, you know what we're trying to do is we're trying to spend a lot of time in valuing those forecast cash flows uh, and attempt to come up with what we think is a, a fair price for those companies. And that's the second part is quite important, particularly in being a long short manager, because effectively the second part is trying to set the scene for what are the odds that the market is giving you in that particular stock price. Because if you think about what a stock market is, it's a list of prices every day that are moving up and down, but essentially those prices are a weighted probability outcome for each of those stocks. So best way to explain it is, is an example. So if it's a good quality company that has defendable cash flows, a long history of good returns, but is being priced on an aggressive set of forecasts that's contrary to our thesis, you know, we would say that's pretty un- unattractive odds and we're unlikely to earn it in the portfolio. Um, so on the long side, we're trying to maximize alpha by buying good businesses with significant duration where the market is pricing in a more pessimistic outlook because when you get those sort of circumstances, that's typically when you get the asymmetric payoff to the upside. Um, the best way to put it is you're trying to place your bets or you're trying to look for odds that are in your favor where there's more upside than downside. So many ways to win on either the quality perspective or the price-to-value equation. All right. So sorry to interrupt you there. Essentially, for the benefit of our listeners, what you're essentially saying is you're looking for value companies that the market's priced in incorrectly that you can see upside on the longs. Correct. That's right. And then contrary to that, the shorts. So the shorts is the opposite to some extent. First of all, it starts with us, again, understanding the nature of the company. So what type of business is it? Is it commercially viable to start off with if it has no earnings or cash flows? What sort of industry or company returns are possible? And so once we get the understanding of the business, then we look at the market price and valuation. So has the market value those cash flows correctly? And so we are generally on the short side looking for overvalued companies that are either low quality or have red flags. And so we've developed this red flag system, which is based in our proprietary database. And that red flags look for signposts for either aggressive accounting or signs of business duration. Um, essentially, we want to short companies where the market may have either been over-enthusiastic about growth prospects or is incorrectly making judgments around the quality of the business. And we do use a data-driven process 
particularly looking at financial accounts and making those short decisions. And, and timing is, is critical because you can be right but wrong in terms of being way too early. And so the, the red flags process is trying to find, I guess, changes in the accounts or signs of aggressive accounting to give us confidence that, that actually things are deteriorating faster or, or more than what the market's expecting. Okay. And one quick follow-up question that's burning in my mind right now is typically how long will your short be? Because we've just wrapped the Australian reporting season, for example. Is that that month window we've had, are you still in these shorts? Are you out? Typically, what would be your average length for shorting a, a, a stock? So the the market since about early 2022 has really fallen off. And so we've, we've found actually some of our shorts have worked extremely well in a short period of time. And some of those short positions have been held for about six months. And so if we look at where we did go quite early on was some of these consumer stocks, which we saw had above earnings trends and inventory building, some of those stocks have fallen quite significantly. And so we, we, we've removed some of those shorts. So the average short position more recently has been about six to eight months. We plan to have shorts for a longer period of time, but because there's so much dislocation in the market, you know, we aren't hanging on to some of those positions, particularly as they become small in market value and less liquid. Okay, Ray, I've got a little bit of a cheeky question here. Um, let's flip it. Have you ever been in a short that didn't go the way that you wanted it to go? And how did you actually get out of that from a risk perspective for our investors? Yeah, we, we've certainly had a few names go against us. I'll start with one of the earlier ones where we were short uh, Coca-Cola Amatil which is um, a business that everyone's quite familiar with. When we looked at the company, it was trading at a, a premium to its historic averages. Uh, its growth was slowing quite significantly. Its cash flows were deteriorating. Uh, there was pricing pressure and they were putting up price and it was impacting demand. And so we, we saw a business that had profit margin pressure CapEx was, was rising and debt was rising as well. And so we looked at it and we thought, well, it's pretty unlikely that the earnings are going to blow us out of the water on the upside because you know this is a business we're pretty highly confident around predicting its earnings. We've got real-time information around pricing. Uh, so we were quite confident that this position would probably just underperform the market. Uh, what we saw was um, a takeover from the European affiliate Coca-Cola in Europe that bid a pretty attractive price, about a 25 to 30% premium. And so we, we basically had to close out that position. So that was something that did go against us, even though it had the red flags and the deteriorating prospects. And so I guess the lesson in that was, you know, there is, there's always capital floating around. And so when you don't expect it, there could be M&A, particularly if you go back to that period, you had a very low interest rate environment. But the one thing that myself and my co-manager, Joseph Co do is we set positions quite conservatively. So our short book is very diversified. Um, positions are set at a much lower absolute rate compared to our longs. And so even though that position went against us, it wasn't a huge detractor to performance. Right. That's really interesting. I think that's good for everyone who is listening to know uh, the way you kind of you risk mitigate your fund. So Candace mentioned reporting season, right? So let's delve a little bit deeper into perhaps your key takeouts from reporting season. Yeah, reporting season was was really strong uh, relative to, I guess, our sort of more 
downbeat expectations, but I'd caution it's still backward looking. Um, what we saw was companies still reporting pretty good top line growth, especially consumer discretionary, uh, which have remained elevated at a higher rate than what we'd expected. And even commodity companies were reporting really good results given a period of elevated commodity prices. Uh, healthcare and um, general insurance were one of the weaker parts of the market because healthcare, you had you know a lot of COVID benefits unwinding and general insurance, you've had a big impact around what's happened when in natural disasters. But if you think about the themes that came out of reporting season, I think this also ties into the central bank uh, paradigm is you know, supply chain disruption and labor shortages remain persistent. Like there doesn't appear to be a huge amount of evidence that this is unwinding and it's making it very difficult for businesses to plan for the cycle and it's actually adding to inflationary pressure. Second of all, you know, the other theme was uncertainty. Only 40% of companies were able to provide forward guidance and that really highlights either growing anxiety about the trading outlook or just companies not willing to really put a set of forecasts out there that they know that they can't meet. And Part of the issue that the companies face is they're cycling lockdowns. And so the year-on-year growth numbers actually look pretty good for a lot of companies, but it's the December quarter which they, they, they'll start running into, which becomes a more normalized period. And it's going to be difficult for those companies to, um, to comp that period. And I guess the last thematic really is, you know, broad inflation is really accelerating. Uh, and the big sort of take out we came out of reporting season was companies are aggressively putting up their price, some of them two to three times a year, which is just unheard of, uh, particularly in, in my career in markets. So for example, G8 Education, it's the largest childcare operator in Australia. They've increased their prices now by about five and a half to six percent twice already this year. So that's a 10% increase to childcare fees. And that that was common across a number of companies we spoke to. I think if we think about reporting season, it's it's highlighting inflation is still making its way through the system. Sales growth are slowing or will start to slow and, and cost pressures remain elevated. So it does mean that you know, the profit margins have peaked and the jaws are starting to close. That's really interesting. And you know what? I'm really feeling that inflationary pressure as well. My coffee in the morning, a large oat cappuccino, is now $6.43, which is just outrageous. That's criminal. I know, but, you know, I'm still getting it because I need it <laughs> to get through the day. Uh, thank you for those key takeouts, Ray. Now, in a moment, we're going to hear more about how you're managing volatility in your portfolios, delve deeper into your fund, as well as what everyone's been waiting for, your three top picks. But first, Let's hear from our sponsors. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we're back. So just before the break, we were really listening to Ray's perspective on the economy, the Australian economy, I should say, and state of play as it is now, and then his thoughts, I guess, from reporting season. But now with that in mind, um, given the recent volatility, I want to focus back in on what you do at the fund there. I guess I would imagine you're sticking to your knitting more than ever, being a long, short fund. So let's say, for example, Felicity and I have come into, we've won the lotto. We've got half a million dollars to spend in the market. Why would we pick your fund? I guess this is, give me your sales pitch. And more broadly, I guess, why would an investor, do you think in this volatile market, consider a long, short strategy? Yeah, always a great question. Thank you for that. So what we say to investors is um, our long short fund is a 130-30. So really, it's it's still having almost 100% exposure to equity markets. And so our, our goal is to outperform the benchmark. And really, by leveraging our capability on both long and, and short, we have a quite a, a large diversified team of all age experiences. So the average experience across the team is about 15 years. Um, so we've really sort of beefed up the the bench with senior analysts. Uh, but if we go to specifically around long short, so most managers tend to be long only focused because shorting has just been difficult skill to master. And what's made shorting even more difficult in the past has been you know extreme market conditions. And when when I say extreme market conditions, you've had you know central bank intervention at uh, at levels we've just never seen in the past. So, you know, very low interest rates and quantitative easing, which is artificially depressed longer-term interest rates. And so that's meant asset bubbles have built into the markets and investors have become less skeptical about companies that don't make profit or have become less averse to, you know, expensive valuations. And that tends to happen. Yeah, everyone's thinking they're a professional investor at the moment because everything was going up. That's right. Right, before this year. <laughs> and, and it's very classic late stage bull market cycle where, you know, people can confuse luck with, with skill. Um, and those sort of that sort of environment has generally been the enemy of the short seller. But the winds are clearly changing. You know, the language and the rhetoric coming out of central banks is we don't care about financial markets anymore. We don't care about asset prices. What we care about is getting inflation down because it actually hurts, you know, Joe on the street there who's making a $100,000 wage. His rent's going up by 7% a year. His petrol price is going up and um, his food prices are going up. So, you know, that Society is really being affected by inflation, which has not been the case for 40 years. You know, inflation has averaged 2 to 3%. If you want to look at when was the last time inflation got to 8%, it was, again, going back to the 80s. So that support from central banks, the rug's about to be pulled away from investors. So the winds have changed. And so having an element to be able to short does add to portfolio risk management and alpha extension. And so if, if you think about the three advantages of shorting is, is number one is, you know, you can benefit or profit from asset bubbles bursting. 
Uh, and really, if you think about excesses in the market, there's been a huge amount that's been built up because of quantitative easing. So having the ability to add some shorts to the portfolio does provide extra return to investors that's not available to, um, by investing in long early funds. The second point is, and we did a lot of work around this uh, when we looked at launching the strategy, is uh, we actually think you can add alpha from shorting in bull markets as well. Um, so we took a holistic view around the market and looked at the composition of returns from the ASX 300 going back over two decades. And what we found, if you look at both the ASX 300, the ASX 200, about 40% of the stocks in the in these indices actually go down on average every year. And that's even when the index is up. So I think that's a point that we that's not really known by the market. And that's because if, if you think about the way the index is constructed, it's the returns are disproportionately weighted towards the mega caps, like BHP, CBA, CSL. But then within the cohort of the ASX uh, 50 to 200, there's a number of industries or mid caps there which are giving investors a lot more volatile returns. And that's because those companies could be experiencing either secular change or idiosyncratic challenges that are very uh, not mutually exclusive to the market cycle. So even in bull markets, you know, we looked at between the years of 2016 and 2019, we had uh, high single-digit, low double-digit market returns. There was about 35 to 40% of stocks in that index which gave you a negative return. And so if we can identify in the shorts, that's an available pool of alpha that's not available to long-only managers. And then this is probably my favorite is the third point is the market has a history of, you know, thematic boom and busts. And there are always sectors experiencing irrational pricing. You know, think about buy now, pay later or biotech or the cannabis bubbles that we had. I mean, you know, investors were just falling over themselves to get access to those stocks. And in more recently, you know, internet retail and now lithium exploration companies. And so in my over 20 years experience in the markets, like there are always shady characters out there who are looking to get on the next bubble or the next hype, you know, like the Carl Solomon of 2000, who are looking to take advantage of investors' greed and fear. And, you know, if you think about just going back to buy now, pay later, you had the pioneer after pay, but then you had three to four, lookalikes or copycats that didn't really have a business model, which those stocks are basically not worth anything. And some of them are down 95% from the peak. And so my co-manager, uh, Joseph Co and myself, you know, we, we spent a lot of time saying no to companies on the long side. And so those companies also become targets for short opportunities. We've developed a pretty good skill set to identify those shorts, particularly around our laser focus around accounting. And, you know, when some of those companies collapse, they can collapse in a spectacular fashion. Um, so if you can identify those companies well, um, it can certainly add to extra return that's not available to a long-only fund or, or an index fund. I know we promised we would just focus on the Australian market and economy, but I'd love to know your thoughts just hearing you talk about, you know, how some of these hype stocks and companies and valuations can just get, you know, way out of control. Do you have an opinion on the notion of SPACs causing that issue in the US market? Some of the SPAC IPOs are off, you know, 80% since listing. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think this is the end of SPACs? Think about SPACs, I, I go back to my uh, my pre, my first role in a boutique stockbroking firm. Uh, this was pre-GFC actually going back to 2006 and 
it was actually happening in Australia. They weren't called SPACs back then. They were called cash boxes. And so there was um, a number of organizations. <laughs> that sounds dodgy. <laughs> uh, and, and believe it or not, they were really easy to get away. So you had uh, a couple of Babcock and Brown uh, cash boxes lists. You had Orco Equity Partners, which we closely followed when I was at this firm. And so capital was free or is is really easy to get access to. And so at Schroeder's, we talk about finding businesses that play with other people's money because the incentives are all wrong. When it's not your money or it's other people's money, you find companies will do silly things because the CEO is, is incentivized to go out and spend the money. And if he's not investing along investors, then, you know, they may take undue necessary risk. And so what you're seeing in the US market is, basically the film that played out pre-GFC was all these cash boxes that were raised uh, effectively, you know, got marked down by investors. And so those SPACs, if they still have, if they actually acquired decent businesses, there'll be vulture funds, which will end up and buying some of those assets at 30 cents in a dollar, which will actually make for really good returns in the next cycle. So um, you want to be selective about what you buy and where you put your capital, but to your point, you know what we—the boom in SPACs was just bull market condition, which played out before. And if you've got the experience in the market, as as we do, you kind of learn from history. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting here, right, and especially about your fund, is essentially you're going out meeting companies that you want to potentially add to a long position. But when you do your DD, you're actually thinking, you know what, some of these companies are actually better fitting for a short. So I think that's really interesting um, and very exciting for investors who have exposure to your fund. So with that being said, can you give us potentially maybe your three top stock picks that are in your fund at the moment and why? I'll, I'll caveat by saying this isn't uh, investment advice and general advice only, but some some of our, our key top picks, uh, one of our largest position is a company which most people should be familiar with is, is Ramsey Healthcare. Ramsey Healthcare is the largest private hospital operator in Australia, operate about 72 hospitals in Australia, but out of those 72 hospitals actually own about 48 of them as freehold property. So, in fact, you know, we kind of we kind of say Ramsey Healthcare is an undercover property tycoon in Australia, and some of those hospitals were built uh, around World War II, and so they are large hospitals which have been built on historic sunk capital costs, which cannot be replicated commercially today, given you know the inflation in building materials and labour, and so those hospitals have provide a critical network effect for the private. Medicare system, and they just cannot. That network cannot be replicated today. And anyone that tries to build a hospital today just can't make a commercial return. So they're really attractive assets. Uh, and then Ramsey is also the second largest operated private hospitals in France and the UK. Um, so that's so. When we look at Ramsey, it's a high quality business with uh, infrastructure like type assets. But if you look at market pricing, the market doesn't like it because it it was a COVID loser. So its earnings got hit really hard by lockdowns because you had elective surgery cancellations. And on the other side, they were having to pay increased labor costs due to staff absenteeism. They had increased costs around protective equipment costs, uh, which saw earnings get hit really hard. But we, we looked at it and we said, look, that's transitory. Because um, if you think about now, you know, the outlook for earnings, you'd expect uh, double-digit revenue growth because private hospital elective surgery rates are recovering. There's pent-up demand. Uh, you can't defer uh, surgeries uh, into perpetuity. And so we are seeing extended waiting lists. 
And also we would expect labor costs and productivity to improve as COVID absenteeism subsides. The bigger change that's coming through Ramsey is obviously the, the fallout from the KKR takeover. So KKR came out and offered $88 a share for Ramsey, but recently pulled its bid due to you know, increased funding costs or elevated volatility in the markets. I think the bid really highlighted that the market was undervaluing the company. And if you look at why it was undervaluing it, it's, we think KKR's angle was to spin out the property. Again, going back to my property tycoon analogy, uh, if you assumed a 5% or 4.5% cap rate on the property valuation, you actually get a number of about 6 to $7 billion, uh, which is almost 50% of uh, Ramsey's enterprise value. So we think KKR's intention was to spin out the property. And there is a precedent that's been set with HealthScope's privatization. Multiplex spent out the property. Uh, they were able to achieve a 5% cap rate and again, a 40% of the enterprise value to get a $2.5 billion valuation. So to us, it highlights, again, the market's being a bit temporary with weaker earnings and really missing there's a hidden asset there being the property. And, and clearly, you know, the property valuation's probably taken a hit with rising bond yields. But for us, you know, we've, we're taking our long-term view. We think this, this company will be able to grow earnings above GDP and, you know, there's a property backing there that provides us with um, a safety or margin of safety. So that, that's probably one of our, our, our key picks um, and particularly given the fallout with the bid. And a second one in the portfolio that's that's been there for some time, uh, which we think the market is is still undervaluing, is, is News Corp. Now, when people think of News Corp, they think of Rupert Murdoch and newspapers. Actually, the business has changed uh, quite significantly. So News Corp's now a conglomerate of or what we say high-quality media companies, um, the largest being the 62% shareholding in uh, realestate.com. Um, so REA Group trades on the ASX. Uh, the second largest asset is the Dow Jones Group, which owns the Wall Street Journal masthead. Uh, and then the third asset is, is HarperCollins, which is the second largest book publishing asset. Um, there are other media assets within the portfolio, but they're the three main ones. And then if you look at REA, you know, it's the clear number one in real estate listings. Uh, it's got a lot of pricing power, you know, and, and people will be worried about the property cycle at the moment, but, you know, they've locked in 6% price rises, which really highlights a dominant position and the agent's dependence on, on the business. And also they've launched a number of new products, which is going to add another 6% to price growth. So this is a business that's going to give you about 10 to 12% price growth in an economy that's about to hit the wall. So it's, that sort of business is really hard to find and New Corp owns 62% of it. The third pick is we quite like commodities and one of the commodities we do quite like is is lithium, but we're, we're quite cautious on the name Sunibest. So um, Independence Group is, a, is another holding in the fund. Uh, it's done quite well for us, but um, if you think about what Independence owns, so Independence is uh, a nickel producer and also owns 25% of uh, the Greenbush's lithium mine. And, you know, most of the value is in the lithium assets. And if you think about the world is decarbonizing, there'll be a transition to electric vehicles. So demand growth for lithium is expected to grow six to eightfold. Ray, I've just got to say, uh, Felicity's eyes are just lit up. This is probably her favorite stock. <laughs> it's one of my favourites and we've actually had it for some clients since, you know, it was a dollar something. Um, so they're quite pleased. <laughs> so th- this is a great, a good example of how we think about companies and where we invest because at the moment there's a gold rush going on. There's a rush going to all lithium names. And so we, we spend a lot of time looking at valuations. And so 
Independence Group has a market cap of about $10 billion. And it has 25% of Greenbushes, which is the, one of the lowest cost hard rocks bodumene mines in the world. And its cash payback today will be about $2 billion, if, you know, because lithium prices are quite high. Spodumene is about $5,000 a ton. So you're getting paid about a 20% yield on the current prices. Plus there's a nickel, which will give you another couple of hundred million dollars of EBIT. So you call it a 25 to 30% earnings yield. But on the other hand, there are other lithium companies such as Alcam, Pilbara Minerals, and then there's a whole list of developers which have market values of $1 to $2 billion, which we can't justify the valuations because there's a lot of growth being factored into those companies. And a lot of those companies, particularly the developers, won't be able to take advantage of the current high lithium price because supply will catch up. Lithium is in abundance. So we are long IGO because we're going to get paid the valuation back in cash, but we've also have a few short positions on the other side and some of these developers to hedge off the risk because by the time those projects become commercial and some of those projects are high cost and unconventional, lithium prices will come down. You know, our forecast is for a lithium, a spodumene price of $900 long term. And yeah, IGO will make its money in cash, whereas other, those other companies won't be able to sort of make the sort of returns that IGO is. Well, thank you, Ray. You've just solidified, again, one of our top picks. So we appreciate that because it's been on our order pad uh, for a little while now. So just to summarise, your key long thematics are really communications, consumer durables and materials and energy. Um, and now we will get into the very exciting part of your short positions. Yes, yeah, so on the short positions, we we have a really diversified book. Uh, we would say there's probably not a, a single thematic running through the short book. You know, we've we've removed a lot of the consumer discretionary shorts that we we placed earlier, and at the moment, it's really a mixed bag of industries that that are bottom up. And so, if you think about the market cycle, uh, you've had the cash burner type companies derate significantly. So the, the buy now, pay laters, the internet retail companies, they were short positions for us in the past, which we're no, no longer short. So it's quite diversified and it's basically a set of companies which we think are generally low quality or have been over-earning and the market really hasn't factored in the prospects of weaker earnings going forward. So uh, without sort of naming the names. Because you can't, right? <laughs> Correct. And look, because sometimes management obviously take some of these personal and sometimes it's not management's fault. It's just the market is wrong. The market is pricing the stock incorrectly. So it's by by no fault of management that a stock has, you know, gone up sixfold that can't justify its valuation. So we will take a view on the market pricing and the quality of the business as opposed to a view around management because, you know, management are probably doing their best to try and you know, make the business work, but sometimes the market becomes irrational. And one of the best examples is um, a short that we exited uh, not long ago, and we were short the stock for a while. Is is EML Group? Now, EML Group, also known as Emergence, is a company that I followed for over a decade, um, even when I was at UBS. Uh, it, there's, there's actually a decent business in there. So EML is a card issuer, which mainly specialises in issuing bank accepted cards for niche programs. So think of gift cards, salary sacrifice cards, gaming cards. You know, barriers to entry are actually reasonably high and it's because it's difficult to win customer trust and also difficult to be approved as a card issuer because MasterCard and Visa just don't approve anyone. So there's a business in there, but we always saw a, a pretty low growth company. Um, a lot of growth was driven by acquisition 
And, you know, the business had a history of accounting footnotes. So long order statements, sort of weak cash flow, fair bit of goodwill on the balance sheet. So we, we kind of felt it was an okay business, not a great business. Uh, but, you know, over time, the management team there started to diversify through um, acquisitions into fintech companies. So the biggest one they did was prepay financial services in Europe for about $300 million. And along with that acquisition came a lot of buzzwords such as, you know, enabling neobanks, uh, you know, leading the evolution around fintechs and disrupting the banking industry. And so it attracted uh, a different set of investors. And again, by no fault of management, it attracted a lot of growth managers who maybe didn't have the history with the business or didn't understand the underlying part of the business and probably started factoring a really aggressive growth forecast. And so the stock continued to re-rate Whereas we saw low growth, we saw some regulatory risk, uh, we saw an acquisition-driven growth profile in the past. Um, and this stock started to re- I think it, it peaked at the time around $2 billion. Uh, so that was around a $5.60 a share. And there was a huge social media following. You had a lot of guys pumping this on social media. Uh, so we started shorting somewhere around you know the early to, to mid-fours. And we just felt, look, this business is probably being valued incorrectly. Uh, there was regulatory risk and red flags that were growing that were actually mentioned um, by the company that was fully disclosed, uh, but investors ignored. We started to see the buildup of non-recurring items and you know, the use of EBITDA compared to statutory profit and cash conversion started to weaken. So we saw all those red flags and actually the position that was going against us. You know, it's, you had all these momentum guys buying it, pushing it. So we, we reviewed our thesis because when positions go against us, we just want to make sure that our thesis is still on track and we held on. And then the stock got hit with a number of regulatory rulings against it, particularly one by the Central Bank of Ireland, which basically meant that a number of card programs were were frozen or put on hold. There was going to be some increased costs associated with compliance. And stock is now collapsed about 80 cents or market value of 300 million, which at that level, we, you know, we, we covered the short uh, much earlier on. But again, this highlights that the market can be irrational. It can price a company on a really optimistic view that's uh, that's really detracted from reality. And so if you can take advantage of that situation and add alpha to your clients, you can add quite a lot of value, particularly when you know there's a big social media following and there's a seductive narrative around buzzwords around a particular stock. It always comes back to back down to economics of a business, the cash flow, and in the end, the market will will weigh on the cash flows of a, of a company. And that's obviously an example where the short, you know, you've done really well out of. Um, one one short sort of, I guess, characteristics that we commonly hear is some managers stay away from crowded shorts. So I'm going to ask that question to you because I know you can't mention current thematics that you're in, but if you could give us any colour to the what is, I guess, keeping you up at night um, from the Australian economy side of things, one that I know is a very common short thematic is the the travel uh, reopening. It may not go out to what we're thinking. So I think Flight Center is one of the shortest, most ASX stock at the moment last time I looked. So any any thoughts around that? Am I uh, getting any bites there from you? Sure. So look, we, we do look at short interest and um, there's mixed data around short interest. So actually, there's been studies to show a high level of short interest actually is a good predictor of underperformance because the shorts are doing the work. You know, they're, they're more skeptical than the long early guys. Uh, and so short interest is actually a pretty good indicator 
for future performance. Now, you'll get short squeezes from time to time and bursts of short covering, but as long as the thesis hasn't changed, you'll find that short interest is actually um, a good indicator. And so on Flight Center in particular, so we are not short the stock. One of the metrics that we do look at is days to cover and liquidity, and we want to keep our days to cover, particularly on the shorts, um, you know, somewhere between sort of five and 10 days. We don't want to be in the market covering shorts for more than those sort of that's that amount of period because you can be wrong, you know, and that's the one thing about, I think, the skill of a good fund manager is to admit that when you're wrong, you're wrong. You've got to move on from a position. Uh, there's no point in being stubborn. Um, and it's actually why I'm reading uh, the Moby Dick book at the moment. It's um, Someone gave it to me and said, look, if you're going to be shorting, you, you want to be reading this book because if you all know the story of Captain Ahab, it's, it's not a pretty story. And so you don't want to be emotional on a short. You don't want to be stubborn. And so Flight Center has got a very high level short interest. It's actually got a pretty low free float. And so on a days to cover basis, it doesn't meet our liquidity test. Okay, that's interesting. And I guess one fun way that we like to, because it's been such a big episode with you, like my head's spinning on all the different thematics and topics we've gone through. But one way that we love to end on a lighter kind of um, topic is we ask every of our special guests the same question. This is the hardest question you'll answer all day, I'm sure. What's your poison? Coffee, tea or tequila, Ray, what's your choice? Look, it's coffee definitely in the mornings, beer in the evenings, and I thought you were going to ask a question about the upcoming grand final. So uh, I grew up in Western Sydney. You know, you got Parramatta versus Penrith this weekend, so um, there'll be definitely some beer flowing around this weekend, and no matter who wins, I think it'll be a pretty good outcome uh, for those fans because, you know, they're they're both good teams. So who are you going for then, Penrith? Because they're the aren't they the better team? <laughs> they the odds are on on Penrith. Um, I'm actually a Penrith supporter, and I actually grew up supporting both teams. Uh, so for me, you know, if, if, if Parramatta can take it, it'll be a great Cinderella story. And you know, they haven't had a grand final win since '86. Great, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ray, for joining us. It's been such a great episode, and our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of this one, and we're excited to share it. Great. Thanks for having me. Before we sign off, please remember, although Candice and I are financial advisors at Shore and Partners, please note our discussion today does not constitute as personal financial advice. As always, you should seek professional advice before making any of your financial or investment decisions. Everything we've talked about is based on what is known at the time of recording, which is the 27th of September, 2022. That's it. And also, um, I guess Ray is a professional investor himself and obviously a fund manager. So he is speaking to the tone of his fund definitely not personal advice as he mentioned if you enjoyed this episode like we did please do us a favor jump onto the socials instagram is uh, one that we're trying to drive up our followers so we'd love if you could follow us our handle there is at talk money to me podcast and we actually give market daily updates so you can see what's going on in the world of finance please also feel free to jump on wherever you get your podcasts and give us a, a rating and review five stars always appreciated i sound like i'm really asking for it aren't i (laughs) (laughs) all right until next time everyone see you then stay safe guys 
Talk Money to Me is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Talk Money to Me are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Mates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporation Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find the ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Talk Money to Me acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.